try to make those first few moments as awkward as possible. <laughs> because I too was homeschooled. <laughs> homeschool's cool. Homeschool's cool. Homeschool's cool. Where do you go from there? It's like I won the science fair, there was one of us. I tried to ask someone to prom, my sister said, no thank you. I got in trouble with the principal, my father. Great story, Blaine, great story. Hey, I'm really honored to be here to be able to lean in and speak in this Proverbs series. I had a chance to have dinner with a few Georgetown Chi Alpha students right before this. And uh, we were just spending a little bit of time bragging on Bonnie Duncan. And so, yeah, yeah. I, I love that there's, there are some differences between the Chi Alpha at Georgetown and the Chi Alpha at American University. Like, I've never seen a more avid golf clap than I just saw now. <laughs> at AU, it's like it goes crazy, people are yelling, there's tattoos, there might be speaking in tongues, you don't know what's going to happen, it's all confusing and sometimes troubling, but you guys, you want the classic golf clap all the way. <laughs> but I love that because you're super smart, you really are, and I'm so glad to be here. So I have the opportunity, yeah. the only thing better than the golf clap is a pity golf clap. Thank you so much. That's why my mom took me out of middle school, but thank you for undoing all the reasons we were homeschooled. You're awesome. Um, I have a privilege of talking about a topic that is both close to my heart and I think important um, and I think can sometimes be difficult to talk about in a 24-minute segment, so I'm going to do my best. This is not going to be a uh, an entire kind of dissertation on what dating relationships could, can, should look like, or what Proverbs tells us or instructs us about romantic relationships, but I do hope that it provides a little bit of a framework as you and I navigate through life, both on the college campus and afterwards. And so if you're anything like me at all, you're in a situation like this, and somebody gets up and says they're going to talk about dating relationships, and immediately you're either very happy because you're single and you're looking and you want to see who else is taking notes. <laughs> you're like, yeah, let's life group together, me and you. <laughs> or you're like, no, not another pastor guy talking about dating. I really hope he doesn't go to Proverbs 31. I wish I wouldn't have come tonight. Don't worry, I'm here to make everybody mad. <laughs> Before we jump into our primary text tonight, which funny enough is Proverbs 31, I'd like to spend a moment in prayer if you'd join me. Jesus, I pray that you would allow this time to be thought-provoking, informative, and instructional, not based on my experiences, my faults, or what I may consider wisdom, but more importantly, based on Scripture. I thank you that we're invited into the story of God, into a picture of Jesus through the Bible. I think that it's a gift for us, I think that it's God-breathed, and even though it may not address every single specific circumstances, it does provide us a picture of God's character and a portrait of who we're called to be in him. So I pray we'd honor the text tonight, and we thank you because your word is good and we're grateful to you for it in your name. Amen. By the way, just a quick poll. I'm talking about dating tonight. How many of you are at least intrigued by that? Look around, look around. That's a moment I just created for you. I'm a magic maker, what can I say? Great, Proverbs 31, can we read that together? 
Not actually together, but you can follow along with me. I'm going to start in verse 10. Some of you who um, grew up uh, in a Sunday school or small group or church culture, or maybe in the Bible Belt, you might be familiar with Proverbs 31. It's often uh, talked about as a portrait of the ideal woman. And so I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to talk about some misconceptions that I have had and that you might have in dealing with this passage, what it means for us, what it doesn't mean for us, and then hopefully we'll get to some practical application. I love a saying of one of my favorite authors is that all theology... Uh, must work itself out through our hands and our feet. In other words, all theology must be practical uh, because how we think about God uh, influences how we act towards God and towards others. And so Proverbs 31, uh, as I speak over the uh, amazing air conditioner, this is awesome. I love drawing attention to awkward things. It was like I was speaking and the air conditioner was like, shut up, you have nothing to say. And I was like, joke's on you, Bonnie just turned it off. Boom. No, not the golf clap. Not the golf clap. Not the golf clap, Blake. Not the golf clap. Verse 10. A wife of noble character who can find. She is worth more, worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, in all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She's like, she is like the merchant ships, bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it's still night. She provides food for her family and portions for her female servant. She considers a field and she buys it. She, out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her tasks. Verse 18. She sees that her trading is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night. In her hand she holds the distaff and grasps the spindles with her finger. She opens her arms to the poor and she extends her hands to the needy. When it snows, she has no fear for her household, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. She makes covering for her bed. She is clothed in fine linen and purple. Her husband is respected at the city gate where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. Verse 24, she makes linen garments and sells them and supplies the merchants with sashes. She is clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. She speaks with wisdom and faithful instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children arise and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Honor her for all that her hands have done, and let her works bring her praise at the city gate. How many of you guys are familiar with this passage, have heard of Proverbs 31 before, have read it, have seen it on a t-shirt or part of a women's conference or a Mother's Day sermon? Um, yeah. Me too. I grew up in the Bible Belt. Sure. I'm not there for a reason. All right. I'm just kidding. I just heard the roll tide. I appreciate that. Appreciate that. Amen. And also to you. Um, I grew up with this being presented, or at least from my perspective, being interpreted as a list of things or as an ideal portrait of what I was to expect or desire within a romantic relationship with a woman. Now, I think that there are I think that can get complicated very quickly. I think it can be complicated very quickly because it is a very long list and the expectations are very high. And any time um, 
uh, I think of what I'm to expect, expectations can easily lead to entitlement. I'll put it that way. So I think this passage is somewhat problematic because there's not necessarily like a Proverbs 32 that's talking about like, there's not like a dude list of things, right? So it's like, that's kind of unfair. Like, you know, Ephesians 5 talks about the way that marriage should work, but we, we see only a picture of this for women. And, and if you're like me, um, at times you can be, or at least I'm hesitant um, at what, um, I'm hesitant at making sure uh, that I live for Jesus and follow God in such a way that honors the image of God within everyone. Um, and so I think, for me, this passage became a list of things I was to expect, anticipate, or desire in a wife. Not inherently bad, but I think somewhat problematic. I think it's problematic because there are incredible women in Scripture who have advanced the kingdom of God who do not fit that list, Ruth being one of them. Uh, this woman is like, incredible. She seems perfect. She has an Etsy shop, it says. She's a real estate agent. She wears purple. It's, 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 it speaks of austerity. And the husband's just kind of like there, and he's apart, and you're like, is he a dictator in this relationship? I'm a little nervous. Old Testament's kind of crazy. Uh, like, that's what I'm thinking when I'm reading it, and it's like my job to read these things. And so as, as I process through it, and I've been thinking through what do dating relationships look like that can be gospel-centered or can bring glory to God and honor to other people's story. I think that instead of applying this text um, as an expectation, which I think it's always dangerous when we read scripture and then we get to apply it to others, right? Like I, I think we should apply it to ourselves. Sean Smith says that the, the Bible is a sword, but it's one that we should hug ourselves. In other words, like I tell students on our campus all the time, the Bible is a sword, but it's not meant to be used against your friends or against culture. It's meant to cut you. And so I think it can be problematic if you hear like a male preacher be like, Proverbs 31, ladies, where are you at? Live up to it. <laughs> Guys, enjoy leading the home. Boom. It's like, I wonder who's happy in that arrangement, right? I don't know. This passage, though, as we begin to study it, is one of several acrostic poems in the Old Testament. So those verses that I read, in the Hebrew, uh, each line starts with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And I think that we have a picture just kind of illustrating that. And if we don't, I can talk us through it. Um, right, and so I, I clearly, like, that, those look like tattoos to me. I have no idea how to read that. Um, but what it is saying is basically from A to Z, or Aleph to Ta, I think if I'm pronouncing it correctly, uh, it's all of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, and each line starts with a different letter. In red, it's the English, um, and then Hebrew being read from right to left. So basically, this happens several other places in Scripture. I didn't know this until I was studying for today, to be honest. Uh, it, it, it basically means that this is a full picture uh, from A to Z, or through the entire Hebrew alphabet, of wisdom personified. We learn that because it's also at the end of the book, and it mirrors the lessons or the instructions in Proverbs 30. And so for me, I'm learning to, to realize that this is a beautiful poetic picture and not necessarily a list of commands or expectations, not only for myself as a follower of Jesus, but not in the intention of God. And so what we realize when we read scripture is that we're reading books, letters, historical artifacts from many different people in different languages and in different literature types. 
And so because this is poetry in a book of wisdom sayings, it is not saying that you have to do all of those things to be considered an excellent wife. What it is providing is a picture for us of the culmination of the wisdom and directed to the discipleship process for women, and this is what that would appear to be. So do you see why that distinction's important? It's the difference between when we read in the pastoral epistles, Paul writing to a specific church, addressing a specific issue that may have a theological, transcultural undertone, but this is more of an artful display of the character of God in the life of a woman. It's not a prescription or a description of what a woman has to be to be considered blessed or excellent. So it seems like I'm kind of maybe like parsing out or it's like this is semantics, but I think it's really important because in order to apply or live out scripture, we have to first understand what it means and how the original hearers understood it. And so this um, also in, in, in most Jewish culture, uh, it's a, a worthy woman also can be translated as, or as known um, in Jewish culture as a woman of valor or as men of valor. And so these were actually songs or poetic lines that people um, would say and still to this day say to one another to encourage or to bring life. And so for us, this provides an opportunity for us to see all of the wisdom that we read about in Proverbs relating to the household, relating to hospitality, relating to an entrepreneurial spirit, all kind of culminating together. And I think it gives us, much like we read in Song of Solomon, it gives us more of a picture than a list of facts. And I think the interesting and difficult thing for us, if you're like me at all, is that you are a destination-driven person in a faith built for travelers. In other words, we tend to want to begin with the end in mind. We tend to be process-driven, but the faith that we follow if we're believers, if we're Jesus followers, if we're people of the book, if we're invested in the way, as it was called, then it means that we are part of a faith that is more concerned with the journey than the destination. So this is painting a roadmap of wisdom unfolding. It's not a treasure map to a destination. So I think that kind of provides us some of the subtext, that this isn't a kind of a, a doctrinal statement about how prepared you should be to date. I think that we find a lot of help in terms of what relationships can and should look like in the kingdom of God, particularly romantic relationships or relationships intentionally position which could lead to marriage, uh, which God is a fan of marriage. I'm a fan of marriage. I love marriage. I'm married, but I also say like marriage is war. It's like, it's like being roommates with your arch nemesis. <laughs> and it's really war because it's like it's war on yourself and your selfish desires. Timothy Keller says that marriage is a sanctification tool in the life of the believer. And then I had a son and marriage seemed really easy. And I'm like, my son is helping me look more like Jesus and reminding me how much not like Jesus I currently am. Because being connected to people, we're also in a faith that's inherently communal. Theology for the community of God, Stanley Grant says it so clearly that because of the Trinity, that we're not just the first in a relationship with God, but we're invited into a relationship already in existence. So for us, it's impossible to live for Jesus alone. Or in other words, our faith is personal, but it's not private. It's always with the communal focus, the horizontal and the vertical lines of relationship 
intersect in a messy and beautiful way. For me, when I think through students that ask me about dating relationships and what the Bible says about them, and we have to be honest, the Bible doesn't have the word dating in it. The Bible also doesn't have the word Bible or Trinity, so there's no need to get incredibly worried. I believe that there are kingdom principles that the Bible gives us to help us um, be people of the kingdom of God, and it should impact every aspect of our life. I also think that Christians, myself included, now a little less hopefully, are the best at giving bad advice. Have you ever met like that Christian who gives bad advice all the time? If, if you haven't met them, that's probably you. I'm so sorry to tell you that. <laughs> Someone's going through a hard time, and you're like, God will never give you more than you can handle. He gave his son a cross. Like, let's be very real here. In the Old Testament, he, he reduced an army to 30 and said, go take on 10,000. Uh, no, God will grow your capacity. But Paul says that I must decrease so he must increase. So I think faith is encountering circumstances that we couldn't, um, we couldn't handle on our own. Romans 8 says that I, I, faith is, uh, and hope is, is of the unseen. For who would hope or have faith in what you already see? And so when I process this and think through, I also know, like, it's easy to say, uh, it's easy to say things about Christianity that just aren't true but look good on Twitter or on a bumper sticker. If you're from the South, I'll go bumper sticker instead of Twitter. Um, it's like, the Bible is life's instruction manual. It's like, man, I get frustrated at Ikea. Are you kidding me? Like, my wife and I never talk about divorce except when we're building Ikea furniture. I hope the Bible is nothing like that. There's horse in the meatballs. Anyway, anyway, it's, so, it's still so tasty, but it's true. Okay, there is, I know. I just broke some of you guys' hearts. 1 Peter 5 and Ephesians 5.21, I think, provided us a groundwork or a launching pad for what relationships in the kingdom can and look like. And I just wanted to read one verse in 1 Peter 5, verse 5. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. So it's talking about authority and relationships and dynamics and the, the beauty of following that Christianity is not just about leadership, but it's about following well, about serving. And the next part of the verse is all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. I like to pair that verse or understand its context when it comes to relationships of the romantic persuasion with Ephesians 5.21, it paints a picture, instructions for Christian household, maybe you're heading, or, or the idea of marriage lived out, and it, it, or the institution of marriage practically, and it's this. It starts out with, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, mutual submission um, for the honor and glory of Christ is an expression of love towards one another. You know this in your relationships with friends. Uh, you invest in your friendship, sometimes by doing what you like, but, but most especially by giving up your preferences to love somebody else. These provide us somewhat of an idea of where to begin talking about dating relationships. I often, I get accused on my campus of talking about relationships too much that I shouldn't give students a peripherals talk. I don't know if you've had that talk yet. I give it to some of our freshmen before they go on retreat. We call it peripherals. I can't even say that word right. Peripherals. Riffriffs. So it's kind of like you're looking at Jesus, but you've got to have him open to see who's beside you running towards him. Yeah. It's corny, but it's real stuff. 
I tell the girls and guys, kind of like, don't be staring at people next to you, but just be looking ahead and make sure it's open. Because some girls in our ministry, like, they're blinders only. Like, I'm dating Jesus. And I'm like, try having a wedding with Jesus. That's going to freak people out. <laughs> Hope you like being a bridesmaid. That's awesome. Or I talk to guys in our community. They're like, I really want a godly marriage. I'm like, have you ever thought maybe, possibly, about considering to ask one of the girls in Kyle out for, I don't know how to say this, coffee? And they're like, oh, no, no, those are like my sisters, man. <laughs> so I'm like, you're totally right. The, the main thing you have in common is Christ. You want a godly marriage, not the way to go. <laughs> God answered your prayers through Tinder, young man. Wow. That's living out scripture. I have a friend who, who says it best. He says that there are opportunities within campus ministry or Chi Alpha for you to potentially find a partner for you to live with forever. A person who you could live out the gospel with. And he says it this way. He says, the pond of Chi Alpha is well stocked. Does that make sense? Like, there is great people in this room. And I tell our students all the time, they're like, no, no, no. I like more, I find people at the clubs, at, at, at the bars, and I'm going to bring them to church. I'm like, you're totally right. You should overlook every guy that's already at church, and you should just try to, you know, make them change. That's a really great idea. I don't think everybody in this room should start dating tomorrow. Let me just go there. I just want to throw that out there. I think that ministry can be summed up like this. It's to uh, comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. So I think to the students in my ministry and the students here that like you're obsessed with a relationship, a romantic relationship, like cool it down. Take a break. You don't need to have five profiles on Christian Tingle or whatever it's called. <laughs> but then there are other people, and this is most of my campus, and if they were here, I'd say it because I say it to their face all the time who you desire marriage one day, you desire a relationship, but it's either fear or not knowing what to do and it's stopping you. And I think that those people I want to kind of move and say like, hey, it's okay to take a risk. It's okay to take a chance. All the guys that I mentor, this is true. It hasn't worked out for all of them, I'll be honest. <laughs> all the guys that I mentor, I say, hey, if you're find yourself attracted to a grown Chi Alpha. You should probably not just tell all your buddies that, but you could do this radical thing and you could, you could ask her for coffee. And you could take her, take her on a date. Or if she asks you, you go on a date. And here's what I I've been thinking about lately, is that because we're taught to have high standards in dating relationships, scripture says that believers aren't to be dating or married uh, with non-believers, and that we should be on parallel tracks, we should be growing together towards Christ in, in, in relationships and callings that fit together. And as I, as I think about that picture, and, and I think about what it means for our students, I realize that because we're told to have high standards, we also probably have too high of expectations. Both in, 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 in preferences and not principles. Um, but we also have two expectations on like what the first date should look like. Like I have guys in our ministry like, I'm going to get a tuxedo. I'm like, wrong. <laughs> Three dozen roses. I'm like, this is not an outreach at Georgetown where you're handing out roses. <laughs> you don't need that many. 
Or they will have already, like, in their mind, like, want to make sure they could see themselves, uh, like, on family vacations with this person. <laughs> sure, you say that. It's cute, but then nobody, nobody takes them up on it. And, and so what, what I'm saying is, like, I think that we live in a society, um, in, in our segment of time in Western American society, where relationships have become economical. Or in other words, relationships has become transactional. I've said this, you've said this. You've dated somebody for a year, you don't get married, you break up. Even if you've been walking in sexual purity, you're like, this has been a waste of time. A waste of money. I could have bought so many more Xbox games. <laughs> but relationships in the kingdom of God are transformative, not transactional. In other words, it's possible to date somebody for two years, for three years, for eight months, for six weeks, and if you are trying to glorify God, not that you're living perfectly, if you are striving towards sexual and physical purity, and you're honoring their story, that it can be a success. And it can be a success without a wedding. A breakup can be a success in the kingdom of God. Because I believe that relationships and conversations are inherently spiritual. That you and I are shaped not just by our experiences with God, but our experience with others. That we're walking around in a world of people that are either children of God or people made in the image of God who do not yet know they are children. And so I think for you and I, it's about how can I live my life? The whole Christian faith is how can I live my life so that I long for Jesus more and I look more like him? Mike Godswa, a mentor of mine, says that Jesus loves group projects. In other words, that we tend to try to personalize or individualize our faith, and it was never meant to look like that. When it comes to dating or romantic relationships, I think it's, it's important that if that's a direction that we desire to go, that there is a way to walk through that um, that is proper. In other words, Ignatius, right? I'm a big fan. I know you guys are too. Um, great guy. Love him. San Francisco. So good. Um, I just can see him being like, thank you, San Francisco. He never said that, but I can just see that with the robe. Anyway, I'm, just, I'm trailing a little bit. This is great. The service is so late. Wingo's, ah, okay. He says that sin is disordered attachments. That all your desires are disordered attachments. And so I think what, what it looks like to date well in a gospel-centered biblical context is to order the attachments properly underneath the authority of God. In other words, gospel-centered relationships, friendships, and romantic ones, they put their worth in, receive their worth from, and, and make sure that worth is related to God alone. In other, ways, in other ways, imagine two people, a man and a woman, who got on a coffee date and who aren't having questions of worth or significance before they sit down. That their identities are not tied into the response of somebody, but they are already recognizing that they're living out of a more abundant love relationship than they could ever cultivate on their own. It's in that moment we're getting to know somebody else, encouraging, affirming, and, and leaning into those stories crossing, if even for a moment, I think God is glorified. I think God is honored. I think that God loves when we take risks. I think that faith is all about risks. I think we don't know the measure of faith that we have until it's put to the test. 
Maybe it's a difficult season in your life. It's a family issue. Uh, for me, it was dealing with mental health issues for the first time. But it was in moments of risk where I really understood what faith meant. That's why the gospel takes root most rapidly and most deeply in places of need. That's why the Bible says uh, that you uh, cannot serve both God and money. It's difficult for rich people to get the kingdom of God. Because it's hard to trust an all-sufficient Christ if we believe that we're self-sufficient. It's in moments of need that the beauty of grace begins to unfold. And I believe that we're all wired in some way or another for relationship with God and with others. One of the ways we say it on our campus is, love God, love people, it's going to get messy. Uh, a mentor of mine said it like this. He says, we can be so obsessed with the final product speaking of creativity, that we don't realize that there is inherent beauty in the process. In other words, we know the promises of God, but we're, we're, um, we're unwilling to apply ourselves to the process that God has laid out. And the process that he has laid out is people doing life together, Christians stumbling over each other in their own brokenness, trying to worship a God who's so much greater and so much bigger. So for me, dating is both personally formative, but also deeply theological. I think that the passage in Proverbs 31, the two things that I would pull out of it and say are helpful, are practical, um, are these, and I'll say them briefly. It talks about finding a spouse or finding a wife which I think is really helpful because it doesn't happen through passivity. Actually, no spiritual growth or spiritual movement happens through indecision. I talk to folks in our ministry, students, who are like, I'd love to get married one day. I've got the whole like, wedding planned out. It's kind of strange, but cool. Uh, that's, that's cool. Uh, I miss that in public school, I guess. And, and so they're talking about it, and I'm like, you know, how, many, how many dates have you been on? And they're like, none. And I'm like, how many dates have you turned down? They're like, a ton. Uh, I'm like, what's going to connect A and B? Like, it, it, and, and Willer talks about it uh, as vision, intention, and means as a way for growth. And so there has to be a way where our vision is translated to our intentions and then action follows. It's a principle, the kingdom principle of reaping and sowing. I had a friend that said it like this. He says, uh, the grass looks greener on the other side, like in somebody else's marriage, because that's the grass that you water in your thought life. He says, if you want your marriage to look fuller, if you would pay just as much attention to that as you do this other fantasy you have, you'd be living in the fullness. In other words, worship is just our, the direction of our attention. And it's possible for you and I to worship God well and to invite somebody else into this, this growth project called transformation. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 gives us the idea that we're to live life without regrets. 1 Corinthians 10.31, we're to make much of God. And we're to invite others to do the same. If I had to sum it up briefly, I'd ask the question to those that really want a dating relationship and maybe obsessed with it, like, how often have you prayed about it? It sounds like an easy, cliche answer. But it, it's so funny that when we talk to Christians about what we want or what we desire or we vent about it on Facebook, but we never talk to Jesus about it. 
And Matthew 8 tells us that even though God knows what's going on in our hearts, he desires us to be perseverant in communicating with him. He desires us as children to treat him as father and to bring our needs and our desires. Most of them have been implanted by him that we're still learning how to express. We're to have high standards for who we invest in relationally long-term versus low standards. We're to, have, we're to be value-driven instead of plan-driven. I think that's the hardest thing for students of your caliber is that through the education system, you're taught to have a plan. And so unfortunately, like the students at AU, you probably, uh, school is teaching you how to do school very well. School is helping you be a student instead of being a, a, a formative adult in life after college. So to be value-driven instead of plan-driven. To have lower expectations about date number one through five instead of having unrealistic expectations. To be other-focused instead of me-centered. To focus on Jesus and to focus on somebody else. And to make sure that you have the same foundation because it's very hard to get to the same destination if you have a different starting point. Ideally, I think that relationships shouldn't be something uh, that we necessarily giggle at or we put a ton of pressure on but that both men and women in this room, that you feel freedom uh, to get to know and honor somebody else's story. And I think you do that by asking them on a date. That's one way to do it. And I tell my guys and the girls that I mentor, date would be a key word to use. Like, let's get coffee. And then like 30 people are there. You're like, I thought we were getting coffee. <laughs> it's okay to go on some dates. And I think that until we realize that there's value in small steps, we'll never get to the big end goal. And I have a hard time with that because I love being type A, plan-driven, process-driven systems. But you know what? The kingdom of God and love, person to person, isn't scalable. And we find that out uh, in, in Philemon when, when uh, the appeal is being made for the freedom of one slave. And it's not that the Bible uh, is pro-slavery. It's certainly not because the image of God is all, in all of us. But the gospel doesn't translate to systemic change by approaching legislation. It's by a heart-to-heart -heart conversation. In other words, the kingdom of God is inherently slow and small, but it's deep and long-lasting. And for me, if I were to do college all over again, of course, I would marry my wife. She's amazing. We met, we met each other, and I met Chi Alpha my first week as a freshman at the University of Alabama. That may not be your story. You may not want that to be your story. But I do think that the more people that we do life alongside and the closer we get to people, the more we're living out of our image that God has placed in us, that we're valuing and honoring those around us, that we're creating an affirmative culture, and that we have the opportunity to one day hopefully live within the context of marriage, which is a God-established institution that reflects his love for humanity. So it's not symbiotic, it's symbolic. And it's not just simple, but it's spiritual. And it's hard to get there without starting here. And if there's anything I know about millennials, and I am one, I, I know you think I'm old, but I'm not. I have a dad bod, whatever. I've been, I've been sucking in all night, okay? My ab is tired. Here's the biggest critique I have of our generation, is that we'd rather change the world and do something bigger, do nothing at all, and watch Netflix all day. That we will not start small. 
will either go big or go home in the words of the prophet Johnny Tsunami from the Disney Channel. <laughs> Matt Chandler says that faithfulness to God happens in millions of seemingly mundane moments. And you and I know that real discipleship and real friendship happens in the margins of life. It starts in your small group or core group or life group, but it happens in the unplanned moments. So I encourage you, be intentional. Don't date in isolation. Do it in community. Don't make it weird. Use the word date. And be willing to honor somebody else's story by purchasing them coffee, by taking them to dinner. And I think ladies can pay too. All right. Wow. That, that's what got it? That's awesome. Unexpected. I'll open with that next time. Great. All right. I know we're going to do some question and answer. That is an incredible question. I think, this is, from my reading of scripture, in my experience, I don't know if we have enough information before the coffee dates to make that call wisely. I tell, I tell girls and guys in our ministry that it takes time to recast somebody from brother to potential partner, or from sister in Christ, we do rugby together, huh? ultimate frisbee to like this person could be like marriage. So, so I think that as long as you know going in that it, there's a chance of a chance, I feel confident in pursuing that. As long as you're honoring God, trying to walk in, in, in sexual and physical purity. I think it'd be weird if you knew before you dated that dating them would be a good idea. That'd be like a really weird prophetic gift and I, I would love your help in support raising. <laughs> so yeah, does that make sense? Maybe not, okay. Yeah, I'm sweating, great. I do Q&As because I love Bonnie. My students come and visit you guys, and they're like, open table's so cool. They have chips and salsa and wingos. I'm like, shut up. <laughs> and like, they do q and I'm like, well, if you want Q&A and coffee, I'm like, yeah. I was like, go to Georgetown. <laughs> I have an anxiety disorder. I do not like this. Another question. Yeah, that's a great question. I'll start by saying that, that the introduction to that Ephesian 5 passage is mutual submission before it's gendered specific submission in that context. So I'll start with that. I'd say that there are Christians whom both I love and care about and live in relationship with who are in two different camps in terms of egalitarian or complementarian. In terms of egalitarian, which would be 50-50, with no assumptions that God created and designed people um, men and women equally, and they don't necessarily have any default design in terms of the home or career. Whereas complementarian would say that, that there's an opportunity for, for men to be uh, to leaders, but to be servant leaders, to love their wives like Christ loved the church, and, and that there's a little bit more of a created equal, but with different giftings. I think, for me, I attempt, because of my reading of scripture, but also my personality and my experience. I am attempting to live in an egalitarian 50-50 marriage with 50-50 equally shared parenting. I do not think that that's the only way for godly people. Uh, 
I'm clearly doing it because I think it's in Scripture. But I do think that if people would lean more towards a, a, a gender-specific role set, and they do not believe it's just cultural, and they do find it in the text, and both people are comfortable with it, I wouldn't personally spend a lot of time trying to talk them into being egalitarian because I don't view my role as making more Christians that look like me. Like, I have no desire to make Christians that believe in predestination be free will Christians. I want people, I want to be close to those that are far from God. So I think that it's important to, to believe what you believe based on the text and not based just on your experiences. I think that... Um, it's important that if you know where you stand on these, that you find someone that's like-minded. I think the greatest danger is, is trying to force someone into the other camp, that, from the other camp into your camp. I think that's damaging, can be oppressive either way. Does that, I don't know if that makes sense. I don't know if I get in trouble with that with anybody, so, okay, great. Yeah, will it? Will it? Sorry, sorry. <laughs> yep. I think how we doing? Yeah. Yeah. I I like to walk with our students to understand the difference between innocence and integrity. So in our small group leadership interviews, when talking to guys or girls, I ask about their history of how they've expressed their sexuality or expressed. Uh, what lust would be. And if someone says, oh, I've never dealt with pornography, I've never dealt with you know, sleeping around on the weekends, my next question is a lovingly, have you ever dated somebody? Because there's a key difference between God-graced innocence and Holy Spirit-collaborated integrity. My fear is that girls and guys in our ministry who have had the gift of innocence will step into a relationship and realize that they have not built the muscle of integrity. So I start there with that differentiation. I think I have to, as Jonathan Martin says, I have to have a recognition that life is falling towards grace so that there will be mistakes. Um, but I think that boundaries are important. I think that the list of things that you set to not do before marriage means the list of things that you get to partake in without guilt after marriage is longer and more full. I think you do it through accountability and I don't just mean like pity parties where you're talking about boo-boos you made. I'm talking about where you talk with somebody who said, I sinned against God. Um, so I think you expect difficulties. I do think that you walk in forgiveness and repentance when you make a mistake. I also think that there is some theological value, we were talking about this at dinner, uh, for Christians to get married younger. I think there's theological implications because if you're walking in physical and sexual purity or you're attempting to. I think that Paul speaks very clearly and pragmatically about marriage being a place where we can express ourselves as sexual beings and that's appropriate. So I don't think you should get married to just have sex. That's like the weirdest thing to say over a worship bed, right? <laughs> but, I, but I do think that we don't talk about that, but I do think that that's probably why in, there's a Christian subculture of getting married younger, um, because it, it works through the practicalities of that issue, is that we're fallen, but we are created for intimacy, and we are created for sexual intimacy. 
Um, so I think you, you have to talk through your boundaries. Uh, I think boundaries unexpressed become boundaries broken. And from my own life experience. I also think that we build guardrails um, way too close to the ditch of death or to the volcano or to whatever illustration you, you want to use. I think we just like, if the speed limit's 70, we all are going like 72, maybe 70. Um, I share this story sometimes with our students and I think they don't understand it. So my wife, Hannah, and I, we didn't kiss each other until the day we were married. But that's only because, not out of maturity, but out of necessity. Because I'd made so many mistakes in past relationships that I knew that if I even kissed her, that I would walk down a road of inappropriateness that wouldn't honor God or wouldn't honor her. So I think that we are, we, we try to do everything, we try to get as much as we can. Like how far is too far? But I think purity is more of a direction than a line. And so I think thinking through that and talking through that at least puts it on the table. I don't think following God is about our right actions. I think it's being in right standing, righteousness. And so I think processing what we believe and what we want and what we desire uh, can be helpful. But I think knowing yourself. I love Ignatius, again, self-awareness leads to God-awareness. So I knew myself. I couldn't honor Hannah because I hadn't honored a handful of women before that. And so I took on stricter boundaries for future abundance. In other words, the disciplines are making decisions against ourselves in the now so we can fully enjoy it later. I just think that we're trying to get as much as we can now and we have such a short view of time. And so I think realizing that God created sex and that it's a good thing and that he wants it for you and it's okay to want it, uh, I think starting there is great. And I think our secrets and our shame lose their power when they're brought into the dark when they're brought out of the dark into the light. And so I know that's a long answer, but I think recognizing the need, being honest with people around you, doing it in community. And then I think trying to set yourself up in your moments of strength for your moments of weakness. Creating your boundary list is it's not good after 11 p.m. when you're watching your fourth movie with somebody in their dorm room alone. Probably not strategic. So I think thinking through where you want to go and what story you want to write. And it helps me to realize that the story I'm writing with this person may not be the complete story. So I, I want to live uh, with the rest of my story and the rest of their story in mind if we're not to be together forever. I want to honor their future, not just respect the story of where God's brought them. I think tying it into theology makes it more important and helps us make the decision against ourselves. But Christianity isn't a decision against ourselves forever. It's a life of abundance and a life of fullness. It just requires patience. So God's not trying to keep stuff from us. He's trying to get stuff to us. I think that's true in this area, and we don't often talk about it like that. Can I pray to close this out? Yeah. God, you're so creative that you design us for a relationship with you and with others, that you'd invite people to other ways of, of, of life and different backgrounds into a relationship. And I just pray that we'd honor you and that we live our lives for you, not for ourselves. And we live out the scriptures that say as we seek you in your kingdom that you'll give us all we need and you'll even bring us our desires when they're in your will. And we thank you for that in your name.